Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Coming up on today's episode, they say the most stressful thing you can do is move house. What about if you're moving in to Downing Street? We look at the history of handovers when the removals van rolls up outside number 10. In The Columnists, James Marriott and India Knight take a look at the return of George Galloway and should there be value for money star ratings for Megabucks tickets at the theatre? And of course, we'll take a look at what we learned this week. And if you like what you hear on the podcast, join me for Politics Without the Boring Bits live on Times Radio. Listen for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. Right, as we always like to on Politics Like the Boy Bits on a Friday, let's kick off by taking a look at what we learned this week. We learned that Rishi Sunak has a line to take on Lee Anderson and he's sticking to it. I think it's incumbent on all of us, of us particularly especially those elected, elected to Parliament, not to, not to inflame our debates in a way that's harmful to others. Lee's the comments were were made were they not were wrong and all they were that's wrong. Why that's why he's had the whip, uh, the whip was withdrawn. <laughs> we learned that post office boss Simon Recolding does not think he's untouchable. I can echo that and I can tell you that I am challenged regularly and I am very touchable. Sorry, what? Very touchable. We learned that GB News presenter Lee Anderson met GB News presenter Richard Tice for secret talks at a Holiday Inn at Junction 28 of the M1. Oh, quick tip. You know the uh, breakfast buffet? Eat as much as you like but from an eight-inch plate. See that? 12 inches. We learned that Tory Minister Chris Philp has his own take on the idea that poor people should eat cereals for dinner to make ends meet. I, I did uh, last week have a have a sort of emergency bowl of muesli um, in the evening because I was a bit hungry and didn't have time to make anything else. But that's not quite the same as Kellogg's cornflakes, is it? No, it's not. We learned that Railway Minister Hugh Merriman, who's 50, has been playing football but got cramped so bad he had to leave a committee hearing. My leg feels like it's being amputated by the muscles within it, so... The rolling stock is not creaking as badly as my neck. <laughs> we learned that Keir Starmer's finally remembered how to write a funny question for PMQs. At what point did his party give up on governing and become the political wing of the Flat Earth Society? Which was prompted by Liz Truss's latest outpouring. We essentially need a bigger bazooka. Although knowing her, she'll probably use it to shoot herself in the foot. And that is what we learned this week. Now, time for these two. The Columnists with Knight at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor over my laptop, frantically battering away at my column. Yes, it's a Friday, so we are joined by India Knight. Hello, India. Good morning. Uh, James Marriott's here, looking pretty in pink. Hello, yes. Was I wearing pink last week? We always discuss my clothing choices, which I'm not sure of... Huge interest to anybody. If we, a couple of no, people no. are rushing out to If we were concerned my about what was and wasn't of interest to, to the listener, we'd have, we'd have given <laughs> well, it's very, no, it's, I mean, I'm very flattered by Good. it personally, and I view it as, view it as relevant. Uh, we've also got with us in the studio, Patrick Maguire. Hello. Raging to Good Green. Good morning. Uh, Patrick, we want to talk about uh, George Galloway. Um, uh, he's back. Now, would you like me to be the cat? Um, what do we make of the return of George Galloway? Why is this uh, significant with your political correspondent hat on? Well, it's significant because it's exactly what the Labour Party... This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. 
Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Feared it's the first electoral manifestation of community tensions over the conflict in Gaza. And the reason why the Labour Party didn't want this to happen, and remember that's the reason they rushed their own candidate selection, so George Galloway wouldn't be able to bed in and ironically ended up in a situation where uh, when their candidate was found to espouse conspiracy theories, it was too late to take him off the ballot. The reason they didn't want this to happen is because there's a lot of tension and unease and anxiety and division within the Labour Party about Gaza, about the politics of a ceasefire, about uh, opposition to the Israeli government. George Galloway in Parliament acts as a lightning rod for that discontent. He is a very uh, public and forceful advocate for a position lots of Labour MPs would privately like to take. And he's just going to polarise the already very, very difficult uh, internal politics of the Labour Party, both within Parliament, uh, those who represent similar constituencies demographically, or indeed in the country, i.e. the polarisation of what the Labour Party sees as of two very divided Muslim and Jewish communities. So that's why it's significant. Less because George Galloway is going to go and set the world alight and his 59 candidates he's now pledging to run are all going to win. I'm not sure that's the case. In fact, I'd say that's almost certainly not the case. George Galloway is a one-off. It's what this does to the Labour Party and communal politics in this country. And it's not just the, the situation in the Middle East. He's spoken before of being a supporter of Vladimir Putin, was famously a cheerleader for Saddam Hussein. He's so far from the mainstream of British politics. Yes, he is. And it would be a mistake to call him a, a Corbynite or a member of the hard left. His politics is much more heterodox. And as you say, uh, sort of maverick than that. You know, he takes those positions on foreign affairs. He has a very sort of old Labour outlook on economics. On social issues, he's pretty pretty conservative. You know, his, uh, he's had two letters, one that went to uh, white neighbourhoods in Roch- Rochdale and the other that went to Muslim neighbourhoods in Rochdale. The, the Muslim uh, publicity material was all about Gaza, but the, the, uh, the one that went to white neighbourhoods was talking about George Galloway knowing the difference between a man and a woman wanting to build a Primark on, on uh, Rochdale's high street. So, you know, it's classic... Uh, classic populism in one respect, but as you uh, as you say, it's pretty far removed from the mainstream uh, of British politics yeah. as we recognise it. What do you make of the return of George Galloway? Indy? I think it's really interesting, and I think it's a problem for Labour. And the reason I think it's a problem for Labour is that it has tied itself up in knots because Keir Starmer 
is so terrified of revisiting in any shape or form that toxic anti-Semitic legacy of Jeremy Corbyn that he seems completely unable to adopt a position or even say anything robust, you know? And I think, I think that it's sane and a good idea to to understand that anti-Semitism is hatred of the Jewish people. Now, the people watching the news on TV every night or reading the papers or listening to the radio or looking at clips on social media don't hate Jews, obviously don't hate Jews. They hate very specifically the actions of Benjamin Netanyahu's government. And that is a perfectly legitimate mm. position. Agree with it, don't agree with it, whatever. It is a legitimate position to hold. It is not an anti-Semitic position to hold. And obviously it goes without saying that those people were horrified by the monstrous, abhorrent, disgusting, shocking events of October the 7th. But questioning the actions of Netanyahu's government is not, is not it's, it's, as I say, it's a legitimate position. Yeah. And Starmer won't come out and say it everybody immediately starts rumbling about anti-Semitism. It is not anti-Semitic. So I think he's, I think he's sort of messed, messed the whole thing up and made room for Galloway. And I think for that reason, Galloway is going to be a problem because he will be saying in Parliament things on this particular topic, possibly an extreme version, but, you know, yeah, yeah. broadly in the ballpark of what a lot of normal people think. I mean, and I know... Labour people, yeah, yeah. And I suppose... And Labour people, but not just Labour people. I know very nice, respectable, probably Tory-voting, middle-aged women who have been on those marches, those pro-Palestine marches in London. And meanwhile, the Tories are saying, you know, hate marches, Lee Anderson, blah, blah, blah. Although, weirdly, the only person on the right who's speaking who is speaking quite robustly, seems to be David Cameron. Um, and I think good for him. I mean, James, I suppose the, the problem for Keir Starmer is that any time taken up with dealing with the politics of George Galloway is a time when he's not talking about the economy and public services and taking a fight to the Tories. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how um, George Galloway uses that platform in Parliament, which is probably you know, more powerful now if you can use it to get clipped up on social media and yeah. disseminate your speeches on social media that way, which wasn't really the case the last time he was in Parliament. And I think he will probably take advantage of that. I mean, the whole thing kind of makes me think, you know, in a way, thank God for that, the two-part, this dominance of that two-party system, because we see as soon as, you know, Labour isn't able to run a candidate, you're much more open to these kind of populist energies, which we've been pretty protected from um, in our parliamentary politics so far. You know, it's very hard for, you know, reform to you know, find, yeah. you know, get into Parliament. And it just made me think, you know, as soon as you lose one of the two main parties, populism is suddenly jumping into the gap. And we should be thankful that we're, you know, protected from it. Patrick, reform did at one point think they had a decent shot here. Once the, once the, the problem with the Labour candidate had happened, they got Simon Danchuk there, former Labour MP. Uh, um, when I spoke to him earlier, I mean, he, he's now throwing around, oh, it's not a free and fair election and postal votes, he's got no evidence for it, there was anything wrong with them. But, you know, it all sounds a bit like being a sore loser. But coming sixth, it's going to be disappointing for them, isn't it? Well, it raises two questions. The first is, do people necessarily know what reform it, uh, UK is even now? And frankly, bluntly, 
is the, form, the semi-disgraced former MP best known for the circumstances of his departure from Parliament, i.e. sending lewd messages to a 17-year-old, is he necessarily the best person to run on a platform of standing up for Rochdale, putting Rochdale first, etc., etc.? I think it tells us two things. One, Reform UK's brand is not necessarily as strong as that which it replaced. Uh, and two, Simon Danchuk was probably not the best person to run a a campaign about local issues given that he's not been the MP for seven years and uh, left under something of a cloud. It also occurs to me as we sit here George Galloway has done now three times what Nigel Farage has never managed which is getting elected in a by-election for a minor party. It's it's very impressive. Uh, Only Churchill can match his record of representing four seats, four separate seats. Uh, But even even then Churchill was being elected through a mainstream party. Yes, exactly. He, didn't, he bounced around a Well, lot. he was once elected as a constitutionalist, but I'll let you off. I knew you were going to tell I'll let you off. I'll let you off. Labour, former Shadow Cabinet Minister, was pointing out to me this morning, you know, Labour have only once beaten George Galloway in a by-election like this. They've only once beaten him in a parliamentary by-election. That was Batley and Spen oh, yeah. in 2021. So George Galloway clearly, regardless of the value judgments people might make about his politics, has a knack for doing this, yeah. uh, can certainly communicate and channel the discontentment of a section of British society. Uh, and he can also uh, turn voters out who might not ordinarily have voted. That was the striking thing yesterday as well. Turnout was about 40%, which is higher than you'd expect from a by-election. And we've saw, higher than we saw in the last couple. In well, these circumstances, yeah. Well, we'll see what... Uh, no doubt, I imagine, we'll hear from George Galloway again later in the day. Patrick, lovely to see you. Patrick McGuire there. Um, uh, Indra James, let's turn back to uh, some other things now. James, your column uh, this week was talking about... Uh, railing against influencers writing books. Yeah. Says man currently writing a book. (laughs) But I I, I, I don't think I'm an influencer. I wish. Um, Yeah, sort of interesting thing that a lot of people, you know, moan about, and I think is actually kind of wider problem that's recognised is, you know, you go to any children's book section of a bookshop and a lot of the books will be written not by actual children's authors who've, you know, worked up and made careers writing children's books, but celebrities like David Walliams, um... I think Jerry Hallowell has a children's book, Frank Lampard. Like, you know, there are so many people who've just dived into this industry with no previous experience and people get very angry because they gobble up the majority of the sales. And there's also a kind of wider point to be made as well, which is this is something that affects more than just books. So in film as well, you notice, I mean, not maybe the very top big, you know, blockbuster Hollywood films, things like June, but a bit further down the food chain, stuff the stuff that goes to Netflix, film directors are often compelled to... Um, higher influencers when they would want to hire <laughs> actors into certain roles yeah. to get like funding for the film or to attract a younger audience. I've got a friend who's a screenwriter and the project um, they were working on was really kind of faltering for a moment when it looked like that the particular influencer they'd hired might drop out the film and that would have killed the funding because the film was based on the idea that you'd have this <laughs> influencer who wasn't a talented actor but had an audience. And the point of the column was that this is now kind of depressingly a bit more important than talent is if you can bring an audience and have a platform to something and if people, you know, like you for just existing on online, that is the path to success in all kinds of industries now. I mean, you know, music industry as well could discuss. There was a very good line, in, I thought, in your column about how uh, um, you've got influence pretend, you know, writing books 
which then can be bought by people who then only yes. put them in their background to their own social media posts. So you Nothing is real. Influences pretend to be authors for fans who pretend to be readers. Because I think you know, I think a lot of these books that influencers <laughs> are writing, I can't believe are particularly good. I can't believe anyone's reading them. But you know, your favourite influencer writes a book, you put it on Instagram, and then you pretend to read it, and they pretend to written it, and it's all fake. The interesting thing, though, uh, India, and I know because you've written you've written uh, a lot of books, is that. Um, you can tell the ones that are any good because the ones who've written loads of children's books or even adult uh, novels or whatever are, are clearly good. The ones who write one and then disappear without trace. Do, do you think the market sort of slightly does sort the wheat from the chaff? I think it does, but not after the influencers have sold millions of books yeah, and made meantime. tons of money and yeah. kept everybody else, you know, much further down the pile. Um, I think also there's something really strange in this idea that it's easy to write children's books. It's really, really not. Children are really kind of astute readers and picky. And actually, I do think David Williams's book, well, my daughter rather liked them when she was little. But so I think David Williams is actually does actually write very derivative of Royal Darlish sort of in tone. But, you know, he he, he writes decent children's books. But but. Everybody else's seem to me to be complete rubbish. Um, and, and yeah, parents just pick them up because they, as adults, are familiar with the name on the title. It's a really weird business. But as you say, it tends to only happen once. Yeah, and if it, ultimately if the kids don't read them, they're not going to be yeah. back, you know, buying the same thing, uh, buying the same thing next Christmas. Uh, well, it's a great column, James. Um, uh, particularly your drive-by on the other James Marriott. Yeah, my we, nemesis. We want to return, YouTuber James Marriott. We want to return to that because I'd quite like to get James, the other James Marriott. No, I've been on. to. I'm, ter- I'm now Who, terrified of him. What does he do? The other, what does he's the other you, James Marriott do? A YouTuber. Do? Yeah, he's a YouTuber. Right, he did so reaction he videos. He's now becoming a singer, and I said he wasn't a very good singer. Yes, yeah, so we need but, to get him on. No, I'm absolutely. Ter- I'm really terrified of him. Right, let's turn our attention now to the theatre. Theatre prices are going up and up and up. So, should critics include a value-for-money star rating alongside the review? Is it worth you parting with your cash? There's a question asked uh, this week in the Times' theatre newsletter by the Times' chief theatre critic, Clive Davis, who's here with us. So, Clive, talk us through... What's the background for this? Well, the idea came from one of our readers of the newsletter who, who emailed me saying, why don't we have as well as the star rating, which people have just about got used to, why don't we have a, a value-for-money rating which takes into account the, money, the, ex, the expense of tickets? So this particular reader had been going to some smaller fringe venues in London at the Park and Hampstead. He's paying 40 or £50. Pounds. How do you compare that with going to you know, the West End where you now spend easily £100 pounds to sit in the stalls? I mean, it's gone absolutely crazy. So should we really take account of that in... In the reviews, because we we add how long the running time is now as well on plays, which we didn't do before. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah and, and, and there's been a particular outcry over Plaza Suite, which has got um, uh, Sarah Jessica Sarah Parker. Jessica Parker <laughs> and the other and, uh, Matthew, Matthew Broderick, Broderick, exactly. Yeah, that's costing like three hundred quid. Well, that's the tickets. top price ticket. People yeah. are paying three hundred pounds. I think that includes some kind of maybe champagne deal as well. I but bet it's always weekend away. It yeah, yeah. That. But even, a, you know, average right. stall seats, I think, is around 150, 190 yeah, yeah. plus. What do you think of this, India? Should, should we include a value-for-money rating? I'm torn because I think the value-for-money rating is implicit in the number of stars, of existing stars. Um, but theatre, it's just... It's just West End theatre is unaffordable for most people, and that seems a really kind of mm. crazy situation. So actually, maybe yes, and if it drives um, 
more audiences to smaller theatres, like the Hampstead Theatre, then, yeah, I don't see why not. I'm trying to think of a counter-argument, but I haven't really got one. <laughs> Clive, do you, when you're awarding the stars, is there part of the calculation of just saying, actually, for... Uh, a, a two-man show in a tiny poxy theatre. This really is five-star. You're not actually saying it's as good as Mamma Mia on the West End. Well, I try to let the readers... Usually, I try to let the readers kind of read between the lines. Yeah. Um, but in the case of Plaza Suite, because it was so expensive, and the more, more recent example was the picture of Dorian Gray mm. with Sarah Snook mm. from Succession. I mean, that, the prices there are really, really high as well. So I made a point of mentioning yeah, that yeah. in the piece. But usually I can let the readers guess. I mean, when, we, when I go to the Edinburgh Fringe, there I think people, I, I assume that people know that a lot Making of the stuff laughs. I see isn't yeah, very yeah, good yeah. and it's tiny. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. What about you, James? But you also, like, sorry, go on, go on uh, James. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I agree with this because I think one of the kind of the main experiences of going to theatre for me anyway is thinking, oh, yeah, play was all right. And then you think, oh, but it cost me £80 to go. And that's like a major part of the theatre experience is reflecting afterwards on quite how much money I know, and I do feel like I've got sometimes to just on the train on the way home. But you say, it was really good, wasn't it? Really good. <laughs> Desperately you, convincing de you yourself. definitely have the best time of your life? <laughs> well, that's part of... That's behind... That is why people are obsessed with standing ovations, I think. People have to leap to their feet at the end because mm -hmm. if you've spent 100 plus, yeah, you have this feeling that you've really got to respond in a kind of over-the-top way. Oh, and so, um, what, where, if people want to try and find some good theatre, not paying £100 a pot, where, where should they be looking? I mean, presumably outside London is a good place to start. Well, yeah, regional theatre is usually a very good bargain. In London, at the moment, the play that comes to mind, I mentioned Hampstead, there's a play called Double Feature, which is about um, Alfred Hitchcock during the making of um, Marnie in the early 60s, and also Witchfinder General, which was uh, another film with Vincent Price. It's two stories intertwined. Really worth seeing, and I think the tickets are, yeah, £50-ish. Well, that's good. That's a top tip. That's a top tip. And where do you stand on this, this idea that was in the papers yesterday about an all-black performances? Uh, yeah, it's really got out of hand, this argument. I, I'm not convinced that black... I think it's really a kind of a gimmick which has an American, it has American origins. We have a very different system in Britain. It's a very different history. Mm. And uh, I don't really think it really helps bring black audiences in particularly. What, what did you make of it? This is a, it's a play called Slave Play, and they said that two yeah, of the performances yeah. are going to be black-only audience because they wanted to create a safe space for them to, you know, enjoy and discuss the, what was being portrayed on stage. But actually, the, alongside that is they just actually want to get more non-white audience mm. members in. I was I, I read um, Clive's piece. I was quite, I was quite torn about it because when you go to the theatre, there aren't very many brown and black faces, particularly black faces, actually. And I think that um, a lot of audiences who would like to see this play, I think, I think the concept of theatre is quite intimidating to quite a lot of people who aren't white and who aren't used to going. I think it, it seems quite formal, quite posh, quite grand, quite you know. Are you allowed to whoop and cheer? Are you allowed to shout out? Are you, you know, so I don't like the idea of, I don't, I don't fully approve of the concept, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea. I it's only two performances, exactly. right? Exactly. It's exactly the same. I was a bit torn. I think the aim of making theatre, the arts, more accessible and more diverse is definitely the right one. Whether or not 
basically turning it into another culture war argument, which a lot of unpleasant people mm, can weaponize. That's the it. trouble. It's been seized yeah. on people. I mm. mean, Jeremy, the, the author, has made the point of saying he's not banning white people yeah. from going to the shows, but I still think it'd be, there's a better, more intelligent way of targeting audiences. Yeah. And it's not just black people who are deterred from going to the theatre. It's working class people. What does well. that mean? Yeah. I mean, and then you're back to cost again. Yeah, yeah I mean, I still can yeah. go into a theatre and, and you hear the braying voices at the bar yeah. and it can be yeah. unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Indium Knight and James Marrett then, of course, you can read them both with your time subscription. Just go to the times.co.uk and if you've got a subscription don't forget you'll get your bonus episode of politics up the boring bits this weekend up next we're on the move moving into number 10 and the stresses of political handovers in the market for investment worthy bags watches and fine jewelry rebag is the answer Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing. It has been an immense privilege to serve as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom over the last six and a half years. I hope that Norma and I will be able with the children to get to uh, the Oval in time for lunch and for some cricket this afternoon. It shall be a government rooted in strong values, the values of justice and progress and community, the values that have guided me all my political life. You're never ready when you come straight in yeah. off the back of um, 18 years of opposition in that sense. You're, you're never ready. I wish the next Prime Minister well as he makes the important choices for the future. I can remember David phoning Sam up and saying, love, you better get your sock ready, we're going to see green. Yeah, they say moving house is one of the most stressful things we ever do, but imagine the property you're moving into is number 10. So today we're going to look at the hiccups, the bust-ups of the changing of the political guard with some helpful advice for anyone who just might be hoping to park a removals van in Downing Street. What goes on behind the scenes as one government gives way for another? I'm joined by the author and journalist Alan Travis who's been doing some digging through the National Archives and got in touch because he'd spotted some interesting information about the handover power, as we were just hearing there, in 1997 between John Major... Moving out, and Tony Blair moving in. Hi, Alan. Hello. Good morning, Matt. So, what did you find in the uh, in the national the, the treasure trove that is the National Archive? Well, there was a 
uh, uh, a general election planning file which came out in January, fat, fat file, hundreds of pages, mainly packed full of uh, whether Pedro Mandelson or Gordon Brown was going to chair an election planning committee in 2000 in the run-up to the 2001 election, but tucked in amongst it was a five-page memorandum from uh, Alex Allen, who was uh, Principal Private Secretary first to John Major and then for a brief period to Tony Blair, advising one of his successors, Jeremy Hayward, on the practical pitfalls of uh, the changeover handover of government. And he went through some of the really behind the scenes stories, which were, I thought were really, really quite fascinating. For example, he, uh, we all know that uh, when Tony Blair moved into Downing Street in 1997, he, uh, he, he thought the Downing Street flat was too small. So he wanted the flat next door, number 11, uh, for the family to live in. All very well and good. So uh, Alex Allen uh, decided that it'd be a good idea to try and persuade the Chancellor, uh, who was then Ken Clark, to prepare maybe to uh, move out of the flat and uh, uh, make some preparations. But uh, he pointed out to his successor that, that then that Ken Clark wasn't the type to do this kind of thing in advance. Indeed, it required some efforts immediately after the election to get him to move out quickly. He suggested that uh, Tony Blair, Tony wouldn't mind if he delayed that just for a day or two. Uh, and uh, I don't <laughs> think that went down very well with the Blairs. Um, before the election, uh, Alex Allen tried also to uh, ease the pain of that removal van in Downing Street. And uh, they made available a room in the cabinet office for John and Norman Major to uh, move their stuff out before the election day. Uh, Norman moved a lot of clothes out and uh, they took up this advice and uh, they avoided the need to have a removal van. This all went well until uh, an accommodation officer at the cabinet office decided that uh, that the day of ele of the, after the election would be a good day to move a load of office, office equipment out of the uh, 10 Downing Street, and uh, Alex Allen got a panicked phone call from the press office asking what a removal van was doing in <laughs> Downing Street, and uh, uh, they quickly they quickly managed to recover the situation. These, um, these days, there were so many photographers starting in uh, starting in Downing Street all the time. Uh, you just would you, be, the pictures would be out. Low, you know, you wouldn't be able to stop that happening. Alan, uh, stay there because I want to bring in uh, well the man you were just talking about, Sir Alex Allen, who was uh, John Major's principal private secretary. Morning, Alex. Morning, Matt. And then, so uh, Alex was on the civil service side. On the political side in uh, the run-up to the 1997 election was Hal James, who was a polit political secretary to John Major. Hi, Hal. Good morning, Matt. So um, let's start with you first of all, Alex. Get, tell us about your role in the on the sort of the civil service side, because you're sort of trying to, at least Hal's just trying to look after John Major. You're trying to ride two horses at once in that, in that job. Well, I mean, I think the most striking thing I remember from 1997 is just the sort of how quick the handover is, how quick one moment John Major's Prime Minister and the next moment Tony Blair is. I mean, in 1997, as we heard on that clip, John Major came out into Downing Street, made a little speech about going off to the Oval and watching cricket. He then got in the Prime Minister's car, Norma got on the other side, I got in one of the backup cars, five minutes to Buckingham Palace, John went upstairs and resigned formally, came down, was driven off in another car. Tony Blair was summoned from Islington. I sort of waited with the Queen's private secretary. There was a helicopter tracking Tony Blair. <laughs> Tony Blair gets there. He goes upstairs, is sworn in by the Queen, comes down. Uh, he and Cherie get in the, the prime minister's car, driven off back to Downing Street five minutes. They walk down the street and Tony Blair makes his little speech 
um, about his plans as prime minister, I scoot round through the cabinet office and less than an hour after John Major's walked out the door, I'm opening the door and saying to Tony Blair, <laughs> welcome, Prime Minister. I mean, it's astonishing. And I think 1997 was the last time there was that handover from one prime minister to a p- prime minister of another party quite so quickly, because 2010, there were two or three days while Gordon Brown remained prime minister and uh, the Conservatives and Liberal Democrats negotiated there. Oh, that's uh, true. There was a bit more... Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously in other countries, we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later on, but in sort of America, where you have months of transition, the, the gap between the election day and then the moment you actually move in. But it's, there's an interesting point you make, actually. You do have to go back to 97 with someone compelled. Hal James, how do you, as a political advisor to John Major... John Major can read the polls like anyone else, like Rishi Sunak can read the polls right now, but you can't give up in the middle of it. You can't be seen to be loading your belongings into the back of a van before polling days even happened. But maybe we have to be realistic and it's understandable that, uh, you know, Tony Blair wants to, if not quite measure the curtains, at least look at what curtains he might want to replace. The the truth is that that all this happens behind the back of the political uh, uh, team. Uh, Exactly as you identified. And that's not improper. I mean, it it is exactly as you said. Um, You know, it is for the civil service to both respect their obligation to the government uh, uh, in power, but also to prepare intelligently for the succession. And and, um, they, they... do it very, very ably. Um, I, I just remember vividly, um, you, you, uh, the thing to bear in mind is the sheer levels of exhaustion and madness that are upon you after an election campaign. Um, you know, having, we had a very long campaign in 97. And, you know, from the moment we got on the battle bus, uh, uh, I think it was five, six weeks of campaigning. Um, the poor public were absolutely exhausted by it, but those participating were even more so. And um, and and by the time you get back to number ten, I remember, you know, that morning uh, of the handover, walking through the halls, and I remember noting in the in the road there were far more barriers. And then I remember walking in the hall and seeing lots of lights up the stairs and I thought oh I wonder what's happening or I remember thinking you know what can that be for or what's John Major <laughs> doing and and of course you then suddenly realize actually this this has all been planned in advance and is all in preparation for the arrival of uh, the opposition uh, to take over um, and that's happened after you know you you've conceded so uh, but the build-up to uh, an election is also, you know, uh, an interesting period because you are head down campaigning politically, thinking politically, thinking about supporting the prime minister off on a campaign. But clearly you're also reading the polls. What happens during the campaign is the polls sort of drift to the back of your mind as every day you go out and defend your position and you watch the prime minister make another speech and you end up in a slightly delusional space which is you think you might have a chance, despite what the data says. So um, you, you carry these two thoughts with you through the whole campaign. And it only really becomes clear on the night when the, when the ballot uh, boxes are counted and the nation speaks. Um, Alex, because I knew you, you were, were you principal private secretary only after the 92 election? Were you there for the night? It was obviously, which was a much closer thing, and the outcome, you know, the, the expected outcome and the, the Labour, you know, being ahead of the polls and the Sheffield rally and all of that. Is it more, more tense in number 10 when actually it could go either way? Um, well, I know I started just after 92, oh, okay. so I, I wasn't there for the 92 election. Um, 
Um, I mean, one of the things, as Hal says, is that in the run-up to the election, um, inevitably you're doing, the civil service is doing quite a lot of preparation for a change of government, but also um, planning if the, if the, if the uh, existing government if wins and, and stays in power. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned, um, or, um, uh, Tony Blair moving into the Chancellor's flat, I mean, one of the things that happened was um, about one of the weekends in the election campaign, uh, Jonathan Powell, who was Tony Blair's chief of staff, came into Downing Street uh, when it was pretty empty, and I showed him round. And, I mean, we discussed where all the people would sit, what the allocation of desks would be, which is obviously very important when you suddenly get a new team coming in. And that was when um, we went round the number 10 flat and the number 11 flat, and um, we, we agreed that it would be much better for Tony Blair to go into the number 11 flat because it was much bigger. And... Um, with Tony Blair having children, Gordon Brown not having children, it made much more sense to yeah. switch to round. Um, Alan, the, the other things that you, you spotted in this memo was sort of about the practicalities of uh, Tony Blair wanting a bigger car and they even even wanted to send out for pizzas. Yes, yes. He, uh, he, he, asked for, uh, he asked for a bigger car than the usual Prime Ministerial Jaguar so he could take his family around occasionally. And the... Uh, Government car service came back and said the only car they would possibly supply for him would be an armoured stretched Rolls Royce, uh, and which would have meant that uh, the Blair years would have seen him perhaps with a motorcade almost like a US president. Uh, he obviously and Alex Allen, so Alex, he uh, they didn't think this was a very good idea, but the government car service was absolutely stubborn, stubborn about it, and they ended up uh, using the, the uh, Downing Street uh, private office own budget to buy a full Galaxy themselves and bypassed <laughs> the uh, the government car service. So uh, that was uh, that that was too bad. Back going back to 1992, when the election was much more in doubt. Uh, it, it, Alex Allen also advises Sir Jeremy that uh, uh, his predecessor, Andrew Turnbull, had a real problem with the policy unit because he asked them to start clearing their desks before the 92 election. And they took great exception to that. And they, uh, there was a big row over it. Alex, how, how, is, how does it feel seeing your musings somewhat 20, 25, 30 years ago? Uh, re-emerge now, clearly what was a very sensitive, you know, advice document going uh, around in Downing Street at the time is now becoming public. Did it ever cross your mind when you were writing these things they become public? Um, no, not really. Um, I, I mean, it's the sort of thing which, I mean, the Freedom of Information Act came in under Tony Blair, so um, that wasn't there um, then. And, um, I mean, it, it, the National Archives still released... Uh, their material um, after how many years it was that's been reduced. So I suppose, yes, in theory, I knew that it might become public, but I didn't, um, I mean, I didn't write it with any expectation it would become public. Yeah, I suppose, Hal, now, these days, it's all be done on WhatsApp and we'll probably never get these, um, uh, th these, these fascinating memos in the future. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a... a I think one underestimates the personal side of it. I mean, I spent that election night um, with the Prime Minister, the then Prime Minister, John Major, and his wife and family at their home in Huntingdon. And watching, you know, the exit poll and then watching the result. And I remember being in touch with Alex uh, on the night um, 
talking about what, what are we going to do, when are we going to do it. We had a long discussion uh, in the House, actually, about when and how to concede, because when it became clear that um, uh, Tony Blair and the Labour Party had had a mighty victory, um, you know, you then have to think, how, how are you going to sort of do the choreography on the night? And, you know, there were three options, as I recall. You know, we, we go to Huntingdon, where I think at about 3.30 in the morning, we were going to have his constituency declaration. Then we were going to drive to central office and then obviously end up at number 10. And there was a sort of conversation, as, well, where, where is it best for the prime minister to, you know, concede publicly? Um, and in fact, we ended up doing it in all three places in the end, because the first appearance, you can't pretend it hasn't happened. Uh, and clearly, when he stood on the platform in Huntingdon, um, you know, uh, where he was re-elected with a 31,000 majority, as I recall, um, you know, he was obviously going to have to say something. Then when he gets out of the car, you get doorstep to central office and then you're back at number 10 and you heard his words then the next morning um, as, as he set off to the Oak, famously to the Oval. Yeah. But, you know, through all that, we're all on the phone to each other. And I remember... I mean, Alex spent the evening, I mean, he can tell you with, with other people in government, I was sitting there with the then Prime Minister. And, um, you know, when was it appropriate for uh, the Prime Minister to call Tony Blair and concede personally and congratulate him? And we went through all that. And in fact, he did before he went to Huntington for the count. He did phone. And number 10 switch, I remember standing on the phone in the corner of the dining room in John Major's house, uh, being switched through, you know, the number 10 switch, the mighty switchboard there, you know, and I remember them saying, you know, I'm putting you through to Mr. Blair now, and the noise of the Trimden Labour Club in the background, <laughs> you know, great whooping and partying going on. And then I heard Mr. Blair's voice on the phone saying hello, and then I said, I'm going to hand you over. And I handed them to John Major, and they had a very considered and, 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 and decent conversation, as you would expect, um, given both men. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a, a, a generous um, uh, conversation from John Major's side uh, about volunteering to help on anything that he could. Um, but it was, it was very personal, and it was quite oddly emotional, actually. What an extraordinary yeah, moment was, to have been there. I was... Um, Robin Butler, the Cabinet Secretary, had hosted a dinner that evening for me and the permanent secretary of the treasury the queen's private secretary our wives and we played party games afterwards while we waited for the result and then um, as hal said eventually when it, when uh, john major needed to talk to tony blair to make a formal concession i had to do that from um robin butler's kitchen if i remember that being <laughs> a, quite a strange thing but um and then it happened much as hal said yeah extraordinary extraordinary moment to be uh yeah that that the precise moment with the, the handing over of power essentially is just between two two men on a phone call uh, what fascinating uh uh revelations from history so alex allen there who was john major's principal private secretary on the civil service side hal james former political secretary john major a massive thanks to alan travis journalist and uh uh listener to the show who got in touch and said he'd spotted this in the uh, in the National Archives. Let's turn now to 2010, uh, when Gordon Brown left Downing Street and David Cameron arrived. Gabby Burton, who was David Cameron's press secretary, takes us behind the scenes. It all happened so quickly. I mean, it was literally like, I can remember David phoning Sam up and saying, love, you better get your frock ready, we're going to see the Queen in about a couple of hours. And there was pandemonium. But this is what's so wonderful, 
about our civil service is that um, it's so seamless. He has to go to the palace. The first meeting, um, uh, well, not the first meeting, but you know that obviously that all important beginning of those audiences. Yeah. And there's, you know, I can remember the sky copter following the car, and of course we. It was late in the evening for us. I think. I think it was about. Yeah, because it dragged on so long. Basically, it was going to be dark, wasn't it? It was yeah. getting dark, and we had been the, the sort of core team were taken into number 10 by the back route. So we sort of went in a kind of... We didn't go in the front door, because obviously that would have been kind of not right. Um, So we were taken through the sort of back door. So we were actually in number 10, sort of waiting for him. So we could see it on the... So where were you at that point? We were kind of in the foyer. Okay. In the foyer. And I can remember just being so overwhelmed, really, by number 10, the actual presence, actually being in that building, the smell of it... It just was like a sensory overload. All these new faces waiting for David to do his kind of first public bit and then to then be sort of welcomed in to number 10 by the civil service who obviously all cheered. There was great sort of rapturous applause. Um, but, I mean, obviously it happened to us in the negative a few you know, years later where the sort of sobs you know, within 15 minutes get turned into sort of cheers. And that's like the weird thing. The people who were standing next to you clapping... An hour before had been totally. clapping and, and weeping. And I can remember seeing one lady who I'm very fond of and who's a great, you know, an absolute sort of brilliant civil servant. She was sort of weeping as David left. And then she was in the Daily Mail the next, the picture of her sort of, you know, almost sort of singing for joy as she reached <laughs> through the door. And I thought, that is the British civil service, you know. So let's go back. So on that night, he yeah. has the security briefings, maybe start thinking about the cabinet. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I would say about the night or the sort of day one or whatever is, of course, you, you know, the, the, the previous incumbents have left, like, 20 minutes before. So, obviously, we talked a bit about the, the civil service kind of replacing sort of sobs for cheers, but um, you know, you're walking into their office. It's like sort of walking into kind of, you know, it's a bit mawkish, really. So, they, you can sort of always still, you know, smell them. Like, I don't mean that rudely, but, you know, it's kind of, they, they've only just left. And I can remember... Stuart Woods, who I'm an enormous fan of, left me a letter. They said, oh, Gabby, there's a letter for you. I couldn't believe it. I thought, who's this from? And um, it was a very nice thing for him to do, very kind of big thing for him to do, given everything that had gone on. Uh, and the pizza boxes were still in the bin. You know, Gordon Brown, we went into, obviously, we all sort of tro- trooped into Gordon Brown's office to see, you know, what, where it all happened. And the, the table had sort of scratch marks and sort of mar- indentation marks where we imagined sort of mobile phones had been sort of <laughs> smashed into it. Um, I'm sure none of that was the case. But um, And what did the letter say from Stuart? Well, Stuart's letter was great. It was a really, really kind letter saying, look, this is going to be the most incredible journey and working number 10 is a huge honour. But also here is a, a roadmap to all the best loos in the building. <laughs> <laughs> And it was very instructive, and I was you know, grateful for that. <laughs> Gabby Burton, former First Secretary David Cameron, talked about the handover of power in 2010. But what are the lessons for the future? If they indeed, as the polls at least suggest, there could be a handover of power in 2024. Well, a new report came out this week from the Future Governance Forum. It's a think tank which says that Labour should look to its sister parties in the United States and Australia for advice. The Deputy Director, Adam Terry, joins me now. Hi, Adam. Hi. Um, what are the lessons? And I suppose, I mean, it certainly, you know, the, the, the British system of it all happens in about an hour, you know, one more Friday morning uh, when everyone's very tired might not seem like the best possible way to make these transitions. Um, looking to the United States and Australia, what are the lessons there? Well, I think, I mean, you're right. 
it, it is very different here, certainly from the US. The Australian system is a little closer to ours. I think one of the things that we learned by speaking to senior folk, both on the US and the Australian side, is to think of this as a really political exercise. I think it's tempting to think that all the politics is over in the election campaign and where that's being fought and that this is a sort of fairly technocratic task, uh, an administrative task. But really, I think getting this right, engaging with it, thinking about the politics is is going to be the difference, as one of our um, Australian interviewees put it, between whether you get up and running sort of straight away or whether you're spending the first few months uh, having to recover from a kind of fumbled start. And I think all of that comes to, back to the leader, really. But what they both told us, both the Biden team from the US and the, the Albanese team from, from Australia, was you have to get the leader involved and, and then setting the tone and direction so that the transition team can go off uh, and do what they need to. And, and in the Australian case, they literally set a questionnaire, as a, a series of questions posed to Albanese to say, what kind of leader do you want to be? What kind of prime minister? What kind of government do you want to run? And that gave them their sort of political marching orders, really, to go off and, and, and start planning for, for the handover. Uh, and, and in terms of sort of the practical uh, uh, considerations that, that, that Keir Starmer might be having to make. Um, there's obviously like the interpersonal things and, you know, the, the potential moment for taking the call and all of that. How much can you prepare for um, both, you know, the who lives where, but also, you know, who sits where in offices and, and the makeup of policy units and changes of government and all of that sort of thing? There's an awful lot to think about at the precise moment when you're at your most tired and weary after an election campaign. Well, I think that I think that's right. And I think it's why it's so important to have a dedicated resource within your political party thinking about this um, all the way all the way through. And the temptation as you get closer and closer to the election day is to punt everyone over to the campaign. But carving out this space so there are people thinking about those questions is, is really important. And I think you kind of hit on two things there. One of them is that this really is about people. I think the, the people aspect and thinking about who is going to do what um where you're going to hire from and i think one of the things that the american system does very well is have a very kind of open and transparent recruitment process into government which helps them make sure they've got the very best people a very diverse group to kind of draw from but on the australian side very practically what they were saying is that everybody tends to fixate on this idea of the first hundred days when they're thinking about a new a new government um but actually they were emphasizing what you really need is an almost kind of hour by hour plan for the for the first 96 hours the first sort of four days yeah, what yeah. is everyone going to do as soon as they get in it's fascinating that it's really uh really really interesting adam really good to speak to you adam terry there from the future governance forum rounding off our look at the stressful business of moving house especially when you're moving into number 10 and that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast get in touch in all the usual ways matt at times.radio or find me at matt chorley on twitter or instagram but for now for me matt chorley it's goodbye This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.